You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. A very good evening to you and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Coming up on the programme this evening, Sid Sheehan, chef nutritionist from Nourished by Nature in County Kerry, is in studio for his monthly slot. Miriam Atkins, editor of Food & Wine magazine, has an amazing food and drink-themed gift guide to get you in the Christmas shopping mood. I'll be talking to bakery and pastry specialist with Palace Foods, Sheldon Chaplin, about pavlova. What a great name, Sheldon Chaplin. Christine Nimoron gives us a behind-the-scenes insight into being a food stylist. And Ken Mayor Foodie, Karen Coakley, has a wonderfully warming recipe to share that is perfect for this time of the year. Before we welcome Sid Sheehan to the studio, here's how to get in touch with me. You can email me s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. And as you know, I'm always on the lookout for food and drink news, interesting stories and of course delicious recipes. So please don't hesitate to get in touch. So now it's time to invite Sid Sheehan from County Kerry's Nourished by Nature into the studio. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sid, you're very welcome to the studio this evening. Thanks for having me in again, Sharon. And the last time you were here, we finished off just talking about a cookery night that you're having. It's actually this Friday night in the the cookery school. It's finger food and tapas. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so that one is on the 27th. Um, So we still have a few places left on that. So this is going to be looking at it's a cookery demo and it's geared towards um, entertaining at home over Christmas. So again, like we spoke about uh, last month, if you don't want to go down the route of the frozen party mix and you know the spring rolls and the usual kind of bits and pieces, this will be looking at preparing your own finger food, I suppose to impress your guests more than anything else. Um, we'll be looking at tapas, finger food, nice easy stuff to prepare, stuff that you can do in advance. Give us an example of one or two things that okay, you'll actually so, be doing. Some of the nice ones that we do, um, maybe like a savoury shoe bun. So like your standard profiterole, but there may be a savoury one filled with something like a smoked salmon mousse or a goat's cheese mousse. Oh, lovely. Bits and pieces like that. It's just different stuff that you won't buy in the supermarket um, that's actually reasonably simple to prepare and like I said, it can be very impressive than when you present it properly. Absolutely, and give the wow factor. Yeah. And you're going to have Martin Stack there he's going to be doing wine matching yeah so Martin is a local wine expert and he's going to come along for the night bring along a bunch of different wines um, to match the finger food and he'll also be giving lots of tips then on what type of wines to serve up over Christmas or in particular with the Christmas dinner that sounds like a great night and how much is that that one is 35 per person for the uh, the tapas and wine matching okay and that's this friday night and then next week on wednesday the 2nd of december i think you have a lovely class coming up it's edible gifts for christmas yeah so this is an interesting one um i think nothing says that you've put a little bit of effort into somebody's christmas gift you know more than if you make it yourself you can go out you can buy something uh you can go out and you can buy a little hamper you know jars of relishes and pickles and bits and pieces like that but i think if you actually go to the effort of making the stuff at home and again it doesn't have to be labour intensive it doesn't have to be expensive you'll actually find that you'll do this an awful awful lot cheaper than going out buying a gift um, so that's a whole class geared around maybe lots of nice relishes uh, pickled cucumbers stuff like that in jars red onion marmalade bits and pieces like that that you can kind of wrap up um, another one that we do kind of it's it ties in nicely with Christmas is uh, hazelnut and orange chocolate biscotti so you can wrap those up and put a little ribbon around them and give them to somebody as a gift um, obviously you know mulled wine is uh, I think it's a pretty standard one to to give. So is I it though? Because like you usually have it hot. So how would you how would you make it and give it to somebody? Because so you're giving get, it to them cold, obviously. So I can I can give you the recipe if, if you yeah, like for this yeah, one. It's really great. really simple to make. Um, so you, there's only a few ingredients to go into it. So a nice simple recipe for people because you can look at lots of different recipes for this, and some of them are very complicated and they look like they're going to take hours to prepare. So all you need for it is a bottle of red wine. And again, you don't need to go using good quality red wine because remember, you are going to be heating this and adding sugar and stuff to it. So a fairly cheap bottle of red wine, uh, your standard 750 ml bottle. Then you put in an equal amount of red lemonade. 
Um, so your bottle of red wine, uh, 70 f- or 750 mils of Nash's Red Lemonade. I think you're probably better off with that one. Can you still get it? You can still get it. It's probably not as common as it used to be before, but um, I've tried lots of different ones and I'd still kind of go back to that one. Okay. It's probably the best one. Uh, you're looking at 100 grams of caster sugar, or you can use brown sugar, whatever you like. Um, one lemon, one orange, and you can just stud that with a few cloves. And then you can buy a little sachet of mulled wine spice. So that's what's going to give it its real kind of Christmassy smell. Um, I think you'll see those in all the shops at this time of year anyway. Uh, I think Schwartz is the, the brand. They're like a little tea bag. So you just pop one of those into your pot with all of the ingredients. Then if you want to give it a little bit of an extra kick, you can put in for the one and a half liters of liquid, you would put in about 100, 150 mils of either whiskey or brandy. Mm. Um, again, that's up to yourself how strong you want to make it. Now, the secret with mulled wine is do not boil it. Because obviously if you boil it, you're going to boil all the alcohol out of it. So you'll end up with the flavour, but there's no kick left there. So just bring it up to a simmer, turn it off, and keep the lid on it. Lock in all the flavour, leave it cool completely, strain it just through a sieve, and just with a funnel, pour it back into the wine bottles, put a little ribbon around the top of them, and that's it. You know, you've a nice homemade gift for somebody for Christmas. Or get like the small Kilner type bottles. Yeah, they or look something even like more that. impressive again. So you can buy those, and you know most um, shops will do those. Um, you can get those the size of a wine bottle. So you'll be giving somebody a 750 ml bottle of homemade mulled wine. And again, that's the type of thing that can be made well in advance, and it will last if you're disciplined enough not to have too much not of to it. break into it. Exactly. And obviously, you're going to get more than one bottle out of that if you're putting a bottle of yeah, wine and the bottle just, of lemonade yeah, into so you, it. So you're going to get straight away just by adding the red lemonade you're going to end up with two bottles okay lovely so it's, it's yeah, a nice sounds, simple I didn't, I've never heard a mulled wine recipe like that so that's nice to get something a bit different like that yeah it's and I think even if you walk into somebody's house just the smell of that kind of heating away in the in the kitchen you know straight away you get that kind of mm. nice aroma wafting around the house as well lovely okay so that's the edible gifts night which is next week on Wednesday the 2nd of December and yes. how much is that that is 25 per person 25 and it runs person. from 7 o'clock until 9 30. Okay, 7 till 9.30 and you come away with a few goodies or you get to taste You'll a few get, goodies. Yeah, so anything that's prepared on the night, you know, you will get to, to sample obviously, so uh, like all, with, as with all the classes, we tell people the only thing you need to bring with you is an appetite on the night. Okay, and before you go then, let's remind the listeners about these party nights that you do there, bring your own wine nights at the cookery school because some people may have left it a bit late now to be booking a staff night out or a friend's night out and be looking for something a bit alternative Exactly. So it's always left up to one person in the group to organise the night out and then they realise, you know, I'm after forgetting to do it. What will I do? All the restaurants are booked out. So this is something that has really taken off for us throughout the year. Uh, it's a bring your own wine night it's a cookery demo slash dinner so usually what we cover again it's tailor made to suit um, specific needs so if somebody in the group doesn't eat fish or if there's a vegetarian in the group we'll work around that and the menu is tailor made to suit Uh, so it would be something like a five six or seven course tasting menu so the way it works is a group of six to ten people we do need a minimum of six people to do an evening like this everybody sits around you bring your own drink with you for the night whatever you want to drink you don't have to be a wine drinker and as I cook and uh, or prepare, cook and present each course, everything is plated up. You get to eat that. Then you sit back and have your glass of wine or whatever and watch me do the next course. And the night kind of goes on like that. So it's a nice slow evening. You can get into the cookery side of it as much as you want. You can take all the notes because you've got all your recipes to take away with you at the end of the night. Or you can simply just sit there and sip away at your wine and have a chat. Okay, fantastic. And the best place for people to go to get information is probably the website. Yeah, so uh, we have a relatively new, new website. Uh, you can have a look at us on nourishbynature.ie. Um, you can find us on Facebook at nourishbynaturelistol. And if you do want to phone up just for an inquiry or to make a booking, you can get us on 87 Fantastic. Sid, thanks for coming in this evening and we will see you again next month, all being well. Fantastic. Thanks a million. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Sid from Nourished by Nature in Listowel, County Kerry. And still to come tonight, I'll be talking to bakery and pastry specialist with Palace Foods, Sheldon Chaplin, about pavlova. 
Christina Nimoron gives a behind-the-scenes insight into being a food stylist. And Ken Mayer foodie Karen Coakley has a wonderfully warming recipe to share that is perfect for this time of the year. But before that, it's time to go over to the phone where I'm very much looking forward to talking to the editor of Food & Wine magazine. Myriad Atkins is going to have lots of food and drink gift inspiration for us to help us get a step ahead with the Christmas shopping. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Miriam, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks, Sharon. You're going to have some inspiration for us for the food and drink lovers in our lives. So I'm going to start off by asking you, whenever it comes to buying Christmas presents for people who are into food and drink, what are the old faithfuls that never let you down and they're a sure bet to be liked by whoever you give them to? Well, first of all, I mean, they're just so many gorgeous gifts involving food and drink you just have endless options and the great thing is uh, that with all the choices out there there's something to suit everyone's budget I think that's really important to say because the other lovely thing about giving a gift to somebody who's interested in food and drink is that no matter how small or large it is it's going to come across as a very thoughtful gift Um, so I think it's always appreciated so when it comes to Old Faithfuls I think books cookery books are, are a great idea great stocking filler and also a great gift um, kitchenware hampers uh, are a lovely idea and there's so many places that do up hampers uh, for for you but also is a lovely idea and then vouchers um, some people love them some people hate them I love them and particularly if they're for something very specific I think they're a great idea Well let's talk about the books firstly that you mentioned because mm-hmm. there is like there is an endless supply of cookbooks on the market which ones would you personally suggest for buying for people? Well, there are an endless supply, but I, 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 do, I do love to, to uh, look through the Irish books myself, and we have such great cooks and chefs in Ireland. Um, there are some lovely books out at the moment. Um, we have uh, um, Donald Skeen's new book, uh, so his book, Fresh. Um, it's just such a, a lovely book, and Donald has a great repertoire of re- recipes that are just easy you know to make nice midweek meals and also great for inspiration they're the kind of recipes that you can add your own touch to as well um, I just find them really accessible and then um, Rachel has a lovely book out as well Rachel Allen has a lovely book out called Coast um, and this accompanies uh, the series of the same name on RTE and it's just full of beautiful photography um, it's all about uh, Ireland's coast and then the, the food that you can find along the way and that's a really stunning book um, the, another book that um, people may not have heard about, um, it's just new um, is a book called Sea Gastronomy and this is written by Michael Amara from Oscars Seafood Bistro in Galway City and it, it really represents you know, 20 years of research um, in beautiful photography again and what's lovely about it is that it teaches you a lot about fish um, and seafood and I think anybody who's interested in that area of cooking, would, this would make a great, great gift. Um, so that, that, there are a few ideas anyway out there. But So you also have books on wine and drinks. And uh, I know John Wilson, uh, the um, Irish Times uh, kind of wine writer and resident there, uh, resident expert with the Irish Times, he uh, has brought out his Wilson on Wine 2016 book. And that's, that's a lovely reference book to give as a gift to anybody who's interested in wine. And then our own editor, Raymond Blake, um, he has a beautiful book that um, he published recently called Breakfast in Burgundy. Um, and it, it reflects his huge love for Burgundy. It's really his, his adopted second home. And he talks about wine and food and travel. And it's just a beautifully written book. So again, if somebody's interested in wine, it's, it's a great read. Well, moving on then to vouchers, you mentioned vouchers. Uh, like, I'd be a big fan of vouchers myself, especially for something like afternoon tea that you wouldn't mm. maybe normally treat yourself to. Yeah, I think I think when you're getting somebody a voucher, to avoid the the feeling that it's a little bit anonymous or you know there hasn't been thought into it, I think it's lovely to get something quite specific. So, as you mentioned, afternoon tea is a lovely lovely voucher. And getting something for, from a particular restaurant or store that specialises in great kitchenware or something, it can be really thoughtful. Um, so, you know, if you know somebody who's interested in their food and likes to eat out, you could think of a nice restaurant in their location and uh, get a voucher for that. Or, as you say, an afternoon tea or a, a lunch voucher or something, depending on your budget. Um, the other thing is, if you, if you research um, some stores in the area that might do nice kitchenware, 
that can also be a, a lovely idea. And then you have things like Ireland's Blue Book Voucher, um, which is a great uh, guide. You know, w- not only do you, do you get a voucher, but the Ireland's Blue Book itself is a great guide to great places to visit around Ireland. So things like that are very personal. And, and if people appreciate food and wine and, and like going out to restaurants, they will appreciate this. And it's also something to look forward to in the new year. If you get a gift like that, it's something you can plan for. Absolutely. And the other one I always suggest to people is for the cookery schools, because you you might not be inclined to book yourself into a cookery session, but there's cookery schools in every county in Ireland Mm -hmm. now, I'd say. So there's plenty of options there for people to choose from. Definitely. And the lovely thing about something like cookery schools is if you're thinking about giving somebody a gift where it allows them to develop a new skill. Um, So, you know, cookery schools... And also, um, we, we work very closely with GIY, which is Grow It Yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, they do up hampers and you, you can, you can uh, get Christmas hampers from them as well. Um, but with those uh, hampers, they have a lovely uh, Christmas hamper, which con- contains their book, which, which uh, is called Grow Cookies. And it's recipes and growing guides. But also you get a selection of seeds. And um, you get updates as well from uh, GIY. So you learn a new skill again, how to grow things in your garden. And that's just a really lovely gift to somebody. And beyond cookery schools, there's great demos as well all over the country and food fairs. And so you can give people gifts to these as well. And and that gets back to your, your budget and what you can afford. There's a whole range of things you can do. And that are interactive. When you were doing the piece for the magazine, did you come up with anything that's really new or novel or different that people might not have come across before? Um, well, yeah, we, we came across some nice little shops and some nice products. Um, we have a gift guide in our current issue, the December issue, which is on shelf now. And there's some really quirky ideas in there. So, so one of them that I really loved, um, there's a high stool that they have in Harvey Norman, and it looks like um, the cork in a wine. So it's made from actual cork, um, and they retail now at 249 from Harvey Norman. But um, they're just really quirky if you're looking for a real standout gift. But there are loads of little bits and pieces as well. Um, you can uh, get little bee habitats in Marks and Spencers. Um, to encourage bees into your garden. Um, there's a gorgeous shop on Grantham Street called Dust, and this is a lovely interior shop. And their um, kind of ethos and what they do is they don't buy in anything unless they absolutely love it. So they have these kind of lovely little one-off pieces, and you'll find that at uh, dust.ie. Lovely little interior pieces that will enliven any dinner table or anything like that. So we have beautiful... Um, artisan products all across the country and they're all so unique and it's a pleasure kind of discovering them so the idea of creating a hamper um, and filling it with all these lovely little treats and introducing maybe the person that you're gifting it to to these products is just such a lovely gift to give somebody and one of the ways you can do that as well is through subscriptions um, to kind of food clubs and we have a whole feature on food clubs in the current issue of Food and Wine magazine. Um, and it was just really interesting, uh, the article, we commissioned a journalist to go out and try out some of the kind of gourmet subscriptions on offer. And you're looking at coffee clubs, whiskey clubs, cocoa clubs, cheese clubs. And for all of these, you get sent out samples maybe every week or every month or every quarter, depending on the different subscription that you sign up to. And then, you know, it really is the gift that keeps on giving. If you give this to somebody, they're going to be getting these gorgeous little packages in regularly to their door that they can taste these different things and you can tailor it to what they're interested in, you know. So that's that's something that I, I would love myself. I think they sound a great idea. Well, I have a lovely father-in-law, as does my husband, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm not alone in saying that perhaps the father-in-law can be one of the more challenging people to buy for. What suggestions would you have for him? Um, well, there are so many bits and pieces. I think uh, it's always lovely to give, if, if your father-in-law is interested in whiskey or ports or anything like that, it's lovely to give a gift of a lovely bottle. Um, and we have in our gift guide a few recommended uh, items. So um, we have a, a port, Wars port. Um, it's spent four years barrel-aged before being bottled in 2007 so it can be enjoyed straight away there's no need for aging on this and it's only 35 euro and you'll find it in independence nationwide it's it's a great a great buy 
Um, the other thing is beyond and, and the Celtic whis- whiskey shop, uh, if you go online, they have great recommendations as well for whiskies. But beyond um, drink, w- one of the things that I think everybody needs in their kitchen, and if you're buying for a father-in-law who has any interest in cooking, is a really good knife. Um, and I think going to a, a good shop like um, Sweeney O'Rourke's or looking up online um, some really decent uh, knives, if you get a one really good knife, that's something that they'll keep forever. So I think that's that's a great a great gift. And then also you have books again. Um, I know that the K Club has released a new cookbook, um, and that's a really nice kind of one-off gift, a coffee table book that um, a father-in-law might enjoy. Um, and then beyond that, there are little quirky things again. Um, in Boots, you can buy um, Jamie Oliver's recipe box, and it's a box that you can keep recipes in. Um, and that's a nice nice little kind of tweak on something you may not have thought of getting before. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And the whiskey, yeah. the whiskey one would definitely be a very good one now for my yeah. father-in-law. He's a whiskey lover. Yeah, and again, they have, um, the Celtic Whiskey Shop has um, a whiskey club. So that gets back to that food subs, which is a great idea. Absolutely. And of course, subscriptions to magazines. We can't, can't ignore. And can't go wrong with that. one and only magazine that I would advise. And uh, no, Food and Wine, yeah, we have um, a great offer um, for our own subscription. Um, and, you know, you subscribe. We, we think it's the ultimate foodie game, and um, particularly for a stocking filler as well. Um, uh, so Food and Wine magazine, you get um, uh, a yearly subscription um, plus one issue free um, for forty one eighty, And with that, um, you know, you're getting every month. You're getting uh, all the latest news, great recipes from all of our favourite chefs across the country, and brilliant features as well. Obviously, so um, we'd advise Food and Wine magazine subscription is a must. I'll tell you a story now about food and wine subscriptions in our family. A few years yeah. ago, we did a golden Santa, so there was about seven of us between brother-in-laws and in-laws and whatnot. Not. And you didn't know who you were buying for. So you had mm. to get a gift, really, that was quite neutral. And I said, I have the, the best idea here, the Food and Wine magazine subscription. So that's what I got. Oh, and so it hear. was it was signed up then to my mother's house. So sure, we all got it. My brother ended up with it, but sure, we all got to enjoy it oh, each time so that we visited, visited home. So I, I thought it was a great idea. It's a huge hint being thrown out to any of, of my family that are listening. Yes, I would definitely appreciate a subscription to Food and Wine magazine. Miriam, thanks so much for sharing all those ideas and hopefully we've given the listeners lots of inspiration. They can go out now to the shop and get the current issue of Food and Wine magazine, which has all of those ideas in it, plus lots, lots more. Thanks a lot, Sharon, and happy Christmas, if it's not too early to say that. Many happy returns. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan, and if you've just joined us, before the break, Miriam Atkins, editor of Food & Wine magazine, gave us lots of Christmas gift ideas for the food and drink lovers in our lives. And earlier in the show, chef nutritionist Sid Sheehan from County Kerry's Nourished by Nature was in the studio. Never fear if you've missed some of the show because it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show and indeed some news on the podcast front. If you have a podcast app on your phone, the Best Possible Taste can be accessed via that. You can subscribe and it'll pop in there every week for you. You just have to download it. It's all free of charge and very handy to have a listen to when you're out and about and it's also on the iTunes store free of charge best possible taste have a look out for it and I'm delighted about that recent development and still to come tonight Christina Nimoron gives a behind the scenes insight into being a food stylist and Ken Mayer foodie Karen Coakley has a wonderfully warming recipe to share that is perfect for this time of the year Now, I'm delighted that my next guest, Sheldon Chaplin, who is the bakery and pastry specialist at Palace Foods, is going to talk to us about pavlova. You might think that's a bit of a strange one here in the show, but the truth is we recently had a death in the family. 
My lovely Uncle Tommy, who is my mum's brother, sadly passed away and one of his favourite foods was pavalova, as he used to call it. So this interview is for you, Uncle Tommy. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Sheldon Chaplin, what a great name. Where are you from, Sheldon? I am from Australia, Sharon. What brought you to Ireland? Uh, My wife uh, is Irish. Uh, We actually met in Australia while she was on her year backpacking tour of the country. And uh, what can you say? Things happen from there and and here I am. She enticed you back to the Emerald Isle. She brought something back in the suitcase, yeah. Now, you're a pastry and bakery specialist, so you're well placed to talk about pavlova and even more so because you're from Australia. Although I have read that there is a bit of an argument going on between Australia and New Zealand as to where it originated. There is a big argument over this and we might even put this to bed today because it may turn out that neither one of us can claim the rights to it. Um, Very similar respects to which nationality claims Russell Crowe. When he's doing well, he's Australian. When he's doing poorly, they can take him back. But basically, the origin of the pavlova from the Australian-New Zealand point of view comes from the Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova and no one seems to know whether she was dancing in Australia or New Zealand at the time, but they know it was in the late 20s and the pavlova she added her name to. But recent research says that it may actually come from the USA. Really? Uh, The USA, uh, there is a a doctor at the moment. He's actually a New Zealander. His name is Andrew Wood, and he has been tracing the origins for two years, and he can categorically state the modern pavlova began in Germany and eventually made its way to the U.S., during the migration and they have actually gone on to find 150 pavlova based recipes that predate 1926 which is when Anna Pavlova was in Australia or New Zealand at the time. There you go now and I wonder does that doctor have to taste all these different pavlovas as he he goes along and researches them? Well I believe he does because there's over 150 pavlova based recipes predating that time and he is saying at the moment the earliest one that he can find actually comes 15 years beforehand uh, in 1911 and it's actually classified as a strawberry pavlova and it's called a dessert on the move so it was a quick fix. If there's over 150 different ways to make it, then like there must be lots of ways for it to go wrong. I know in my personal experience, having only attempted to make it once many years ago, an experience never to be repeated because my dentist would just have to be paid a fortune. Absolutely. <laughs> there are a few things that can go wrong. There is several variations, but there really is when you're kind of looking at the method that most people would use for their pavlova, which would be a French method, uh, which would be the standard uh, one part egg white to two parts sugar. Eventually, if you were going to eat one every day, yes, you'd, you would be wearing dentures for the rest of your life, but they are very, very tasty. It's simple as that. But in, in the making of pavlova, I, I think the best thing I could say to, to any of your listeners is that your bowl and equipment need to be clean. They don't necessarily need to be sterilized, but just even a lot of people, they'll see in their recipes, and you know, they're adding in vinegar and things like this. If people have an objection to the vinegar, what I would suggest is they just use the vinegar on a piece of, paper towel and actually wipe down their equipment before they start which will sterilize the equipment which will help the egg white form is a stainless steel bowl recommended over a crockery type bowl yes absolutely stainless steel is the number one choice basically what happens is it doesn't matter how often you wash plastic if you're whipping up your egg whites in a plastic bowl um whatever you may have had in that bowl previously you may have had a chili or something savory or something that had a bit of grease in it that will eventually over time the grease will kind of adhere to that plastic. So you're never going to get rid of all the grease. So yes, stainless steel um, all the way if if you can get your hands on it. Well, what's your preferred ingredient list? What do you like to use to make it? My basic ingredients are only four, uh, which would be your caster sugar, your egg whites, a little bit of vinegar just to sterilize the equipment. I wouldn't actually add vinegar into my recipe. And um, it's a new ingredient, which has been on the market a few years, which would compensate for the traditional kind of pre-war and post-war corn flour uh, and that is xanthan gum. What exactly is that now? Xanthan gum is a chemical additive and it's been used recently um, in a lot of things. It's now used if you were in the shopping centre and you were looking at the back of your ingredients list and you'd see it on the back of uh, mayonnaises, you'd see it on salad dressings. Uh, Basically what it is, it's a stabiliser commonly used as a food thickening agent, but what it actually does, it it prevents your ingredients from separating. If you have ever looked at a pavlova after two or three days, you might notice a little bit of kind of 
like a really gloopy residue on the bottom of your plate or the bottom of your, your box. That is the mixture starting to separate. And basically what it is, it's the egg whites coming away from the sugar. This ingredient prevents that completely. And what is it made from? It's basically what it is. It's, it's a production, it's a fermentation of glucose. So it is a sugar-based derivative uh, or lactose. And after a, a short fermentation period, um, they add it to a little bit of alcohol and it's ground into a powder. And then it's added to a, a liquid to form a gum. So, so when you, if you were to buy it, and you can buy it in, um, if you were to go into places like Avoca or kind of really kind of upmarket fruit and veg shops, it's made by a company that you can buy in a retail store called Dove's Farm, and they sell it in small kind of 200 gram jars, and it just looks like a fine white powder. So there's nothing nasty in there it? There is nothing nasty in it. it it's, it's glucose, which again is, is liquid sugar, which has literally been fermented and then ground down and added to a liquid. So how many egg whites, how much sugar and um, how much of that do you use? Uh, very, very little. Um, and I would basically break it down for if you were making a kilo mix of meringue, uh, you would literally use uh, about eight grams of this product. Okay. So very, very little. And what it actually does is it, it combines your ingredients together. It gives your meringue a beautiful marshmallowy texture, which I find the Irish market loves. Um, I would go out with a lot of Palace Foods customers and discover that a lot of people are moving towards the marshmallowy pavlova as opposed to the traditional kind of crunchy uh, base. But would it not be crunchy on the outside and then the marshmallowy texture in the inside? Absolutely. That's, that's the way that I find the Irish market are going. So it's got a very light, crisp crumb around the edge and around the top. And inside, it's just like a, a beautiful marshmallow. So if I want to make then just a standard-sized pavlova, how many egg whites do I need? How much sugar do I need? Uh, for a standard pavlova, I would say, uh, in, in rough terms, you would need about 250 grams of egg white. Um, so if you were looking at your, your standard eggs, which is about 30 grams, you're looking at about eight of those to about 500 grams of sugar. Just talk us through how it's made then. You whisk up the egg whites first. Well, there'd be two different ways to do this, and I'll take you through the two different techniques. Uh, first would be for your meringue um, discs or your meringue nests, which a lot of people like to pipe. Um, that would be where you whisk up your egg whites first until you get that nice, glossy, shiny luster on the egg white, and then you would add your sugar in slowly in stages. So you keep the volume in the egg whites, and then slowly but surely your mixture will start to thicken. And again, when you've added in your final egg, or your, sorry, your final sugar, um, you'd have a nice, thick, glossy egg white where if you actually were to put the, the mixture above a light, it would have a lovely sheen off it, and then that mixture would be piped onto sheets, um, into shapes, into nests, and that meringue would be put into an oven. And this sort of meringue, which is the French method, which would be the most traditional, you would put in a very slow oven, only at about 80 to 100 degrees Celsius, because this sort of meringue is literally dried out. It's actually not baked. You'd leave it in there for a good three to six hours just to dry out, even overnight, if you wanted to turn your oven down to about 50 degrees and then you come back and then you would actually have a lovely white crisp meringue. And those sort of meringues would usually be finished with fresh cream and like uh, coming into winter, a lovely winter berry compote. And again, you can change that with the season, obviously with me being from Australia, uh, with the, the much warmer weather, we would have passion fruit and kiwi and those sort of things. They're so versatile that you can serve it all year round and you can just change your fruits to suit the season. Okay, fantastic. And then you have another technique, a different way to do it. The other technique would be for the pavlova, if you actually want to make a pavlova cake that we were discussing there with the lovely marshmallowy centre. Now, this would be a bit different in the sense that instead of putting the egg white into the bowl on its own, whipping it up to its full capacity before adding the sugar, you add the egg white and the sugar together at the beginning and you whip them up to a full peak on their own. Now, this technique takes a lot longer but this is um, more for a, a baking method where um, including the ingredient that we just spoke about, that the xanthan gum right at the end will give that pavlova a beautiful marshmallowy texture in your hand. You'll actually be able to feel it bouncing around in your hand. So if you pop that into your cake tin and you actually bake that in an oven at about 130 degrees for about 40 minutes, you'll get a lovely lift in your cake tin, very similar to a sponge cake, It'll start to rise very, very similar to what a sponge cake would. So leave it dry out for about 90 minutes to two hours and then turn the pavlova onto a cake tray. You'll find that you have that lovely crisp crust around the outside and the base. And then when you cut through the pavlova, you'll have beautiful marshmallowy slices. 
and all the slices will be consistent because the xanthan gum has binded the two ingredients together. I, I've never heard of actually putting it into a cake tin. It's always been kind of spread or you've done a greaseproof paper. Well, a lot of, a lot of uh, food service um, companies these days and a lot of customers would actually buy and can buy uh, completely undressed pavlovas in the shape of a cake. So instead of going out to buy the, the several discs and putting the cream in between the layers and, and stacking the discs on top of one another, they can go out and buy a complete cake, uh, which would look like just a, you know, a basic chocolate cake or a basic sponge, a full circular cake, and they can take that home and they can decorate that with their fresh cream and berries and they can serve it on, on their you know, celebration day or whatever kind of event they, they're choosing to have at the time. Well, if you are very accomplished at doing the meringue base, you can actually turn it into a roulade. That is correct. Uh, and again, these, these techniques uh, are getting more and more popular and the Irish market at the moment uh, love the roulade. They're very, very popular within our business. The, the same process for the roulade is exactly the same as the pavlova cake. You would get yourself a tray with a piece of paper and you would spread the meringue mix out on the rectangular sheet but in this circumstance, you would actually bake around very, very quickly. You'd bake it for about minutes at 200 degrees. So it literally just has enough time to get the, the crispy outside. You'd let that cool down, and then you put on your cream and your compote, and you would roll it very, very similar to the way that you'd see a Swiss roll in the stores. Very, very same technique, but with meringue. Fantastic. Like, sadly, we have a lot of interference on the line there, Sheldon. So hopefully people did get all the details. If not, you might send me on the recipes and everything that you have there and I can put them up on Facebook and Twitter for people to get. Absolutely. And thanks so much for talking to us about it tonight. I still like to think that it is named after Anna Pavlova, the ballerina, because I had read that the shape of the meringue and it was actually to mirror the, the tutu that she wore as a ballerina. That is correct. And I think in, in the, the sense of that story, because that story, that will never change, no matter what research is done or if they find that it did originate in Germany and flock to the US, that story will remain. Fantastic. Sheldon, great to talk to you this evening. Thanks, Sharon. Pleasure. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, we heard all the ins and outs about Pavlova, thanks to Sheldon Chaplin, bakery and pastry specialist with Palace Foods. And earlier in the show, Miriam Atkins, editor of Food & Wine magazine, gave us lots of Christmas gift ideas for the food and drink lovers in our lives. So be sure to pick up the Food & Wine magazine this month for, for all of those ideas and more. You can listen to all of those interviews again when tonight's show in its entirety was up on the Best Possible Taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com and they'll be posted there later in the week. Or alternatively, as I said before, subscribe free of charge to the Best Possible Taste on iTunes or using your podcast app. Moving on now, I have a quick interview I recorded a few weeks ago with Christina Nimoron from Dingle in County Kerry. It's an interesting story about how fate can create opportunities. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Christina, thanks for taking the call this evening. No problem, Sharon. And I think you have a very interesting story to tell, but we're going to start at you working for the Council of the European Union. What did you do there? I worked as an assistant in the Irish Language Translation Department for the Council of the European Union in Brussels for four and a half years. You're from Dingle, so you, I'd say you're speaking Irish most of the time. Yeah, it's my first language here and we still only speak Irish at home. You must have a love of food because not everybody goes to do the 12-week course at Ballymaloo unless they have a love of food. Yeah, I was raised on a farm and I've just always been around food and always knew the connection of all types of food with what ends up on our plate and I just wanted to do the 12-week course. It was just uh, something I really wanted to do always and I had the opportunity last year to go and do it and it's just absolutely amazing. And when you were there, I'm sure you met a number of interesting people, including a guy called Ivan Whelan. Who is Ivan? His mum is an Allen, so he would be related to the Allen family. Um, he stood in as a teacher every now and then while we were in Ballymaloo, but really I suppose I got to know Ivan 
on a foodie trip to Spain in January that we both randomly ended up on. And it wasn't just any foodie trip, it was a very interesting foodie trip. It was indeed. It was to the south of Spain, um, flew into Madrid and had to drive three and a half hours north, uh, northwest into the mountains. And it was to a pig killing festival. What's that all about? They have a festival to kill pigs. Pretty much, yeah. It's um, it's the time of year that they kill pigs in that part of Spain. Um, it's a very old tradition and they still, just about, still do it. Um, and it just was, we were there with a family um, who have a connection to Ballymaloo, which is how I heard about it in the first place. And they killed four of their own pigs. But all farms around who would have pigs kill around the same time. So when... Everybody then washes out any of the the um, intestines that they need for sausages and stuff. They wash them all out down the weir at the same time. So you might have five or six, seven different families working down at the weir as well as everybody else working on their farms um, butchering the pigs. Is this something that you had heard about and again really wanted to go to in the same way that you wanted to do the course at Ballymaloo? Or how did you hear about this festival? And we heard about it through Ballymaloo because they were actually looking for people to come and kind of help out um, with the killing because the family themselves have two sons and they just needed extra hands and they knew Darina and Tim and Ballymaloo and they just kind of put the word out there that if anybody wanted to go, they could go. So myself and one of the other girls on the course decided, why not? You know, we'd already packed up jobs and done the 12-week cookery course. It was like, keep saying yes to really great opportunities and it was it was fabulous. And how many pigs would have been killed at a time? Um, well, four pigs were killed on this farm. Um, that was the only farm we were on. I mean, other farms were killing other pigs. They call it a festival, but it's really just the time of year that it all happened. Okay, well, you said there about opportunities, when opportunities come up. You you say yes, why not? And a very interesting one came up. Was it in the springtime? In June, actually. In June time. Okay, tell us yeah. what happened then. Um, Ivan, who had been staying with me, um, rang to say he was coming to Dingle. Rachel Allen was filming her new show, and would I just go out and meet up with him and head out for dinner with all the gang? Um, and I did, and I ended up working on the show around here with them. Um, as a local and with the Irish language as well, and then it turns out that they needed somebody to replace Ivan on a show a few weeks later, in, a few days later in Galway, and they asked if I would step in and be home ec on that particular episode as well. So this show is actually Rachel's Coastal Cooking, yeah. and wh- there, Ivan is the home economist for Rachel Allen for this show. What exactly does a home economist do on a show like that? Well, a home economist would um, basically know the recipes back to front. They would have to have every single ingredient needed, every pot, every pan, every spoon, absolutely every piece of equipment you would need to cook the recipe from start to finish would need to be there for Rachel so that there is no break in filming while you're running off looking for a spatula or whatever it might be. But you need to know your recipe back to front so that you know, right, everything is right there in front of her. She can go off and cook this now, no problem. And that might be easy enough whenever you're indoors doing the cooking, but in fact, for that programme, a lot of it was done outside. Yeah, it was. And in the middle of nowhere, basically. In the middle of nowhere. You'd have to set up the kitchen down on rocks, maybe down on a beach, um, which is hard enough to do in the first place, you know, and then you're dealing with wind and trying to keep maybe equipment or herbs sitting pretty in a cup and the wind blows them off so you kind of have to figure a way around things as well. Sounds like you've had first-hand experience of that. <laughs> a small bit, yeah. Windy beaches in Galway. <laughs> <laughs> so you headed up to Galway then for the, the show that was being filmed there. Ivan wasn't there so you were the head home economist on that particular episode. I was, yeah. Um, so I had gone through, I had been given the recipes and had gone through all the ingredients and everything that was needed and um, just you have to just be organized and make sure that you know everything needed is there and you know maybe have a few extra spares 
just in case something changes or something happens. How did you feel then whenever the shows actually aired and you saw your name in the credits? Yeah, it was um, quite exciting. I was like a little child watching my name on the telly. Of course, of course. Why not? That's exactly how anybody would feel. And what is the plan now moving into the future? Would you like to do more of this sort of work? Um, I wouldn't mind, yeah, because like a programme like that, you're filming quite solidly for about three, three and a half weeks. And then it all gets edited and worked out after that. So, I mean, it's, it's possible to do that. As a, as a kind of a, a second job or something like that. It would be very, very interesting to do and it was really good fun as well. So three and a half weeks is how long it would take to film a series like that to be actually out on the road filming? Yeah. Okay, that's quite a lot, isn't it? It is and it's quite, I mean, I think the guys, I was only on two episodes but the guys I think only had about three days off for the whole thing, maybe four. Very intensive. But very exciting and very interesting, as you say. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, congratulations on seeing your name up in lights in the credits there at the end of it. And we look forward to seeing them again in the near future. Great. Thanks a million, Sharon. Christina, thanks for talking to me tonight. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. A lovely chat with Christina and isn't life amazing the way it takes you in different directions. The direction we're heading in now is Ken Mayer in County Kerry to Karen Coakley who has a chocolate recipe for us this week. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen, how are you this evening? I'm very good, Sharon. How are you? Great. And you have a lovely hot chocolate recipe for us. Now, people might say hot chocolate, like how difficult can it be to make? And it's not difficult, is it? It's not difficult. And the funny thing is, for years, I had been wanting to make it. And like everything, I think that's been my big learning curve in life. There's been so many things throughout the years that I've thought, I could never make that. It has to be really complicated. And then it turns out when I sit around to do it, it's not. It's like even with my curry. You know, it took me a long time to get the courage to go and buy my spices, like my whole spices. It took me, like, you know, to get them into the pan, to the whole idea of toasting them and then grinding them. And now I just do it ordinarily. I did it today for a few things because I did a beautiful salad. Oh, God, it's um, an Ottolenghi salad again. But um, it was just with mango and curried chickpeas and uh, sautéed onions and spinach so really healthy and just beautiful and you got that lovely curry flavour coming through with the sweetness of the mango it was divine Did you see today Karen that your pal is coming back to Litfest next year? Who's my pal? Yotam Ottolenghi No Yes, I saw the um, the program there recently. Has just it has just been released, and as soon as I saw oh, really? his name on it, I said, "Well, the, the tickets aren't on sale. It's just the program, the start yeah. of the pro- Well, it's a list of speakers, so he is down in that. So I just thought I'd let you know that while we're talking, since you you've brought him up. Okay. So moving back to the hot chocolate, then. So that just brings me back to the hot chocolate and the whole idea of, you know, you think something is so difficult and so it has to be like, I mean, and then when you go and do it, you realise how simple it is. And I guess with four boys throughout the years, hot chocolate has always been one of those things. It's like their treat. And if we go for coffee, they'll have hot chocolate. You know, it'll be a cake, you know, and a drink or else hot chocolate. I'm not going to go down the route of cake and hot chocolate because to me, that's just too much sugar overload. So what I do basically, it's very simple is I get a good quality chocolate. Now, I buy mine in little. I get the 75% or 74% dark chocolate. And I buy the orange chocolate because orange chocolate is one of my favourite, all-time favourite flavours. The two of them go well together. And I think it comes from when I was a little girl. My auntie used to always give me a Terry's chocolate orange. She was my godmother. So that was always a chocolate orange Easter egg was always my Easter egg from her. So I'm obsessed with chocolate orange. So basically, get your saucepan get your milk I think I used 400 mils of milk for my I think I got about three servings out of that so 400 mils of milk and 125 gram bar of the orange chocolate now you can use plain chocolate and you can what I've done as well is you know taking a good piece off of the orange peel and put that in there while it's simmering and that'll give you a lovely natural orange flavor as well so basically the milk into your saucepan break in your chocolate on a medium heat and keep stirring it constantly Now, if you use all dark chocolate, you might want to add a little bit of sugar. You know, the way you would with cocoa powder, they say, you know, add a bit of sugar and sweeten that. So if it's too bitter, add a little bit of sugar. Or what you can do is use two-thirds dark chocolate to one-third milk chocolate. 
And that will bring down the bitterness in it again and it'll sweeten it. So then for my lads, what I do is I just pour it into like lovely little glasses with handles and some whipped cream on top, um, little marshmallows and a sprinkling of cocoa powder. And they absolutely love that from the biggest down to littlest. And like that, it's all about making memories. So the weather is just horrible at the moment. We've had storms and it's just November, it's before Christmas and everybody needs that little bit of comfort. So it's the perfect after school thing if they come in and they're cold and, you know, it's just a little treat, a little pick me up on a Friday afternoon, start the weekend. I know there's a lot of people will be saying, God, isn't Karen great to go to all that effort whenever you could just get the drink and chocolate powder? But you make it all sound like it's such an experience and, as you said, making memories. Well, it is for me. Food is an experience and our family life revolves around food, you know, and like I say, I cook every day. All the food is put in the centre of the table. We all sit down together and eat it. We've just had six of us left the table here now. And it's very much, you know, everybody's talking, everybody is sharing the food. And it's like when they go, when they leave, I always want them to have those happy memories of being at home and having lovely food and being around the table. You know, I mean, okay, there are days when the TV's on or off, it's kill each other. But at the end of the day, we're all sitting together. And I just think it's forming good habits for them. And the same with making the hot chocolate. You can, of course, get your, your what is it, your Capri's drinking chocolate, but it's not the same. And then it's not the same for me as a mother as standing over a saucepan and actually knowing that I'm making something good for them and something special for them, that I'm putting that time into it. And also, I guess, with everything I do in life, my motto is when I make it, at least then I know what's going into their bodies. So I know how much chocolate is going in, how much milk is going in, how much sugar is going in. I know exactly what they're getting. And then for the grown-ups, Sharon, you're going to like this. You could also add in a splash of brandy if you wanted to, like make a little grown-up hot chocolate. I think in those days that you're killing each other, that's a great idea. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> brandy for the kids, lad. Say nothing. <laughs> Using the orange chocolate, I think, would, would give it a really nice flavour. I'd be a bit of a, I would have a bit of a weakness for chocolate orange so that that would be, that would give it a different twist that you couldn't get out of a out it of a does. tin. Fantastic, Karen! A lovely recipe, so timely for this time of year, whenever the weather is, as you say, so stormy cool. and unsettled yep. and everything. A nice cup of comforting hot chocolate sounds delicious. Thank you so much for that. Are you putting it up in your blog? I'm putting it on my blog, and also it's in the West Cork Times um, last week's edition. So it will be on my Facebook page. There'll be a screen grab of that with a little a little talk about it all and the recipe and it'll be on Twitter and on Instagram Kenmare Foodies Fantastic yeah. Listen Karen great to talk to you as always and we will keep in touch Lovely Thanks Sharon Cheers Chin chin Salut Schleinte Lovely as always to chat to Ken Foodie Karen Coakley. That brings us to the end of tonight's show, which I'd very much like to dedicate to the memory of my Uncle Tommy. I'll always be reminded of him whenever I come across Pavlova. Thanks for joining me and thanks to all of tonight's guests, Sid Sheehan, Miriam Atkins, Sheldon Chaplin, Christina Nimoron and Karen Coakley. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or go to iTunes or the podcast app and subscribe free of charge. I'll be back next week when resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley will join me in the studio to tell us where to dine during a shopping expedition to Limerick. Until then, mind yourselves and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!